Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. West Swanson is an American history teacher at Hemfield School District and also a Mason. He's been working in the masonry trade since he was 16. He is currently the owner of West Swanson Masonry. After earning a graduate degree in American Studies from Penn State, he began researching the history of brick making in Lancaster County and has given several lectures on the topic. He has also consulted with Rockford Plantation to plan STEM lessons involving historic brick making and the masonry trade. Sinking his passion for history and masonry, he focuses a lot of his masonry work in the summer on stone brick and stone preservation. So today on the preservation podcast, uh, we have uh, Wes Swanson with us. Thank you for joining us, Wes. Sure thing, Danielle. Happy to be here. Yeah. So um, I had found Wes uh, kind of the same way I find most of the podcast guests. You know, I read something interesting and then I go searching for them and then we found out we had a, a connection in common from from the past. So it's been it's been fun getting to know to know Wes and his and his his preservation journey, which um, you know, he, he he devotes, you know, time to well I guess you devote your, your time um, teaching history also is, is is you know is encouraging preservation. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm a yeah. school teacher yeah. at, at Hemfield School District. So uh, uh, most of my time is devoted to that, but I give all of uh, the extra time that I have towards towards preservation and working in the masonry field. So it's, uh, it's a nice balance, and I really enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get started in preservation? Or I guess was the masonry work that you initially did, was that more modern, or was it a mixture? It was, yeah. Actually, I started, uh, like a lot of people when I was a teenager, looking for a job. And I uh, had a, a person that I went to church with, and he was a mason. And uh, so I asked if I could work for him, and I did. So he was certainly, and he still is, he's actually got a fairly large company in the county now. I was his first employee, and he did modern masonry. And so I worked with him, bringing him brick and, and mortar and, and all that. And learned the trade off off of him and it was it was a great opportunity because it was just him and I and he was younger then and, and he taught me the trade and then when I graduated from high school I, I just stayed right with it and worked alongside of him and um, and and learned the masonry trade uh, the modern masonry of course and then as I continued on with the field I, I got an itch to go back to college and I loved working with students and and teaching so I decided to go back to Millersville where I got a social studies degree 
in, in history and was fortunate enough to be able to land a job here at Hemfield. And I have been teaching now for 13 years. And then uh, during my time here at Hemfield, I pursued a master's degree in, at, in American Studies at Penn State. And um, that really opened my eyes to kind of a new way of thinking about history. American Studies is history, but there's a number of different things that kind of play into that as well. And it really kind of opened my eyes more towards researching and even pursuing things that some people might not necessarily think has a fascinating history about it and all kinds of different ideas. So then, uh, with that American Studies background, uh, where you could you can study, I mean, we, we spent a lot of time in that program uh, at the Star Barn, simply studying the Star Barn and looking at architectural history and things like that that I never really thought of when I was younger. So right. Really is that mostly neat. like documentation? Is that what that focuses on? Is that, or was it? So American, was American Studies is uh, it's like a blend of history and culture and even some English in there. You can sort of study anything you want. You could. You know, most people don't necessarily always think about sports or something in history. We always think politics and war and those kind of things. But I found that. I was inspired that everything had a history. We were learning about right. history of film and history of sports and history of architecture. And so with my masonry back, background, and I had actually, ever since I stopped working for my old boss when I went back to college, continued doing my own kind of work on the side and continuing to do modern masonry. And then after I, I kind of got that American Studies bug, I really kind of saw how uh, it was such a fascinating history here, even in the trades that, uh, you know, some people that isn't as uncovered yet, you know, whether it's tradesmen or the trades themselves, and the tools that people use. And I found that to be really interesting. And so um, having that background and knowledge and skill, uh, I think, opened me up to some other opportunities. And then I was asked uh, to give a lecture on the history of brick making uh, by the Millersville Area Historical Society, which then kind of brought my two interests together in a way that I didn't really think um, it would. And then I started digging around and doing a lot of research, going to Lancaster, uh, Lancaster Historical Society and uh, put together a lecture and learned a, an incredible amount of, about bricks and how bricks are made. I had the opportunity to tour the Glengarry plant. And if anything, once I really kind of started to understand that side of things, the, the academic side, the intellectual side, it started to make me really rethink um, the masonry side of things and started to kind of send me in the direction more of preservation. So kind of developed organically, I guess you could say. And so now I've really enjoyed um, getting the hands-on side of the preservation, still continuing in my masonry business, doing a lot of preservation work, uh, but also the, the academic and the intellectual side as well that kind of comes with the background that I have in history. So it's kind of neat. The two came together really well. So it's neat. Yes, yeah, and, and I, I, I find that to be true with the trades, you know, you, you start working with whoever you, you're working with, and you learn mm -hmm. from them, but then you start to, like, as your eyes get open more, you know, you, you start to see maybe different ways of doing things, not that one way is right and one way is wrong. There's just multiple ways to, to get to the same place. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah. So, but you, so you had this modern background, and and I, and just from my outside perspective, um, it doesn't seem to be like the masonry 
the masonry process itself has changed that much. You know, you're still pretty much laying by hand and you know, and 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 you know, doing the the pointing or or whatever you know, mm-hmm. whatever you're doing for the for the um, masonry. But the the materials have changed, or has the process changed also? Well, a, a little bit. I I think that. Um, on the historic preservation side of things, then it's it's the materials that we're using. It's having a much greater knowledge, historically speaking, of what you're looking at and how to assess issues that you might see. Um, so, shifting into the historical side of things, ha- using the proper really, it comes down to, of, let's say I'm repointing brickwork, uh, historic brickwork. It's first recognizing what I'm dealing with, what kind of brick I'm dealing with. To be quite frank being able to identify even when those brick were possibly fired gives you a lot of understanding of how to work with those brick. And then going about using the right processes to, to remove mortar and things. Um, and so a lot of guys, I find, make a lot of mistakes when they're making removing mortar. I try never to bring a grinder up on my walls. I take all of my brick joints out if I'm dealing with lime mortar by hand. And okay. then, um, of course, absolutely refilling uh, the joints with lime-based mortar. It's one of the just the, the saddest things going down the streets of Lancaster City and seeing all of the Portland-type mortar that's being put back into these joints and the devastation that does these buildings. And Right. There's no, and there's, there's really nothing you can do to repair that. Uh, you know, I, I've, yeah, there's really not. And I've, I mean, yeah. once somebody has gone ahead and put in Portland mortar into brick, older brick, softer brick, uh, my feeling is, and some people might disagree with that, but my feeling is once you've done that, it's almost worse to go back in and remove all that mortar, whether you're grinding it out or you're trying to chisel it out. That right. mortar is so hard that it's harder than the brick around it, obviously. And so you, you chip and deface the brick trying to remove that old mortar. So it's really sad to see that. Uh, there's so many advantages to using lime mortar, and I'm sure we might touch on that as we move through our our uh, our lecture or our talk here. Um, yeah, but I, I know. I, yeah, I, mean, I think that one of the the things is a lot of the modern mason masons, not all of them, uh, but some of them obviously are interested in you know they know what they know. They don't know the historic right. side of things, so they they see brick and they say, well, we're this is what we use, this is what we're going to do. Um, and and they kind of they make that mistake. And to be honest with you, the way I was trained and the me of 10 or 12 years ago didn't you didn't know any different it's just what you thought was the right thing to do uh, and so you did it and now looking back it's like man that was that was a really bad move uh, so a lot right. of the modern guys you know just still doing that they don't quite understand the concept of what they're doing to the brick when they put modern mortar into those bricks so yeah, yeah. I, I I agree and and I know that uh, my dad would always explain it, and I'm sure you know much more about this than but a, the brick you know, the outside is almost like the crust on a bread and that, you know, and, and, and that, you know, once you lose that, whether, you know, the face blows off because of the, because of the mortar being harder and, you know, the water needs to go somewhere, you know, that, that, that once you lose that, then your, 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 your walls just deteriorate. So yeah, to go back and repoint, I think that is the only, the only option to, to protect the building. Yeah. And there's a mis- there's a misconception in terms of compression strength that for a brick building you want to put the hardest product back inside those mortar joints to, as if that's a better thing and in fact the harder it is the better and that's 
absolutely a misguided type of thinking. Um, the beauty of lime mortar is that it's actually softer than the brick around it, and what it allows is it allows movement within the wall. The walls can move, and the fracture point's going to be on uh, the lime mortar, and the lime mortar can move with it. It can actually even sort of um, fix itself if there's a crack there. If you have Portland mortar inside there, the bricks are the ones that crack. And obviously, as you uh, said earlier, the ability for a wall to breathe and to allow moisture to be released outside of the mortar joints is, is, is incredibly important. And lime allows that, whereas the Portland mortar traps it. And so the only place then that water can go is out through the face of the brick. So you see quite frequently with older buildings that have been repointed incorrectly, what we call spalling, uh, yeah. where the face of the brick begins to pop off and, and so forth. And obviously we see major damage it's done when people try to sandblast the faces of brick off because that's the fired face. Like you said, the crust of the bread. You take that fired edge off and now you're opening up that entire brick face to, to damage. And, and you can do that with sandblasting or you can do that with incorrect mortar where the mortar itself spalls the face of the brick off. And it doesn't take long to walk around any city to see all kinds of examples of that. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, are, um, has, I know you said you toured the Glengarry plant. Are like the mo I know that they're fired hotter, but are the modern brick and the historic brick are they um, are they made from the same materials, or is the material is the composition even different, or is it just the firing temperature? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and and, and this is a piece that I really find most fascinating is the sort of the the dynamic that goes into the brick making. So. If we start with going to the Glen Gary brick, one of the, the things that the modern uh, brick uh, manufacturers do now is they run what's called a tunnel kiln. So what they can do is essentially imagine a train car, like a flatbed train car with thousands of brick piled up on it. And they can move that through this long, let's just call it a 100-yard tunnel kiln with varying degrees of heat. And so this car with bricks stacked on top of it is going to start at the beginning of the tunnel where the temperature is going to slowly, slowly increase as it goes through. And it's going to get to its peak heat. It's around 1,900 to 2,000 degrees. And then it's going to, as the train car continues to move along at a very, very slow pace, the heat will then continue to decrease. And so you bring the bricks up to heat and you bring them back down again essentially the same way you would do in an old-time kiln where you're building fire underneath a brick. You build the heat up, and then you bring, build the, brick, the heat back down again. But the neat thing about the tunnel kilns is, at least in Glengarry's perspective in terms of production, they can just keep hooking up new cars and just keep sending them through. So there's never sending more through, yeah. Exactly. They never, have to, they never have to stop necessarily production, bring it all the way down, and refire everything out like an old-time kiln would. And what it also does for them is they get a production rate in terms of what we would call sort of face brick, brick that, that have been fired properly of almost 98%, where if you go back to the old-time kilns, the original kilns, especially what we call an updraft kiln, which is sort of the kind you might see in the colonial period, they may only be getting 60% face brick out of that, which means there's a lot of brick in the kiln that are either under-fired, a lot of people know those as salmon brick, they're a little extra soft, or over-fired where they're extra glazed, almost dark uh, and, and very brittle. Um, we call those clinkers. And so in the 1800s, 
or even early 1900s, all those salmon brick, they could still be used because those were going to be used to build the interior walls. And you would, of course, collect all your face brick and use those for the outside. But in terms of the composition of the brick, we always think of brick being made out of clay. Now, over in Glengarry, um, they use shale. And so Glengarry has found a, a run, a vein of shale that runs for miles in York and all the way up. If you follow it, almost up into Reading, I think the man told me. And so okay. they're just as much miners, really, miners right. of mining as they are uh, brickmakers. So they're using, they're using shale. Uh, so clay and shale, depending on who you talk to an, an earth scientist, and they'll kind of tell you the differences between the two, but they have a lot of similarities, clay versus shale. And um, so in the old days, what really colored your brick were a number of factors. Number one, most importantly, the material, the material that you were using. And so usually, typically, the more iron you have in your clay or your shale is going to redden or make your brick a little more red. And then the other thing that's going to play into the color is what they called flux. So when they were in the 1800s making their brick, they would use brick molds, and they would have to put sand in the brick molds. And, of course, that would allow the brick to flip out of the mold. But that sand, when the brick were fired, actually acted as a flux and interacted with the gases and the heat that was created. And that kind of helped play a role in, in the color of the brick as well. Uh, sometimes brick that sat at the top of the pile of brick in the kiln where some of the gases hung out uh, would get a little darker. And depending on how they stacked their brick, some uh, brick would have streaks in them. Today, we call that flashing, where you might have a partially red brick and then a little bit of a dark streak and then partially red. And that's because the brick was sitting there where the gases were, and the gases were making the brick darker, uh, but another brick was up against it, so it didn't get that gas up against it. So you have what's called a flashing, right. a red and a black and a red. And you see that mimicked in modern brick today. Um, Today, the Glengarry plant, in order to make all their colors for their brick, they use what they call frit, and it's actually something they spray on the brick, and it's a, a number of things, a little bit of sand, some glass, and things like that. So that's why you might end up having today like a modern brick called, uh, let's say, a Danish 1776, that when you look at it, looks white, but if you were to cut it open, it's red on the inside, and that's because of oh. that frit that they spray on the outside. They obviously I didn't, didn't know that. Keep, yeah. So they didn't have the capabilities of doing that, obviously, in the 1800s. So they were, the color of their brick were really dictated by the material they were using, which is why some people will ask me, they'll say, hey, can you, can you determine where this brick came from? And sometimes you can, but regionally speaking, it's difficult because for the most part, the they color that you're going to be pulling out of yeah. Lancaster, the material that you're going to be pulling out of Lancaster may be from one uh, brickyard to another five miles apart or, quite frankly, even over in York. 20 miles apart is not going to vary that much. Right. Um, but uh, there are some. So like up in Redding, there used to be a Glengarry plant in Redding in, in Shoemakersville. And they produced an incredibly bright red brick. And it was really popular in the 30s and 40s and 50s. And some people will call me over to try to see if I can find you know, replicate that brick. And uh, it's really difficult to do that now because the Shoemakerville plant closed down and they had gotten their hands on a really particularly bright red brick. Another example of that would be the Mountville brickyard that ran, uh, 
in Mountu in the late 1800s right up to about 19, the 1920s. And their brickyard actually sat today where the Sperry New Holland plant is next to the railroad tracks in Mountville. And you can still see the side of the hill where they dug out of. Well, the material that they were digging out of created a chocolate brown colored brick. And you can still see a couple of, a couple of houses in Lancaster City that were made out of Mountville brick. And they advertised that chocolate covered brick. And then the man that owned the, the brickyard, after a little while of using up his supply, he couldn't find that vein again. And uh, he ended up struggling to sell his brick. Uh, so, so depending on where you are and different veins you're in, you can see different, different colors. But today, all that's pretty much gone simply because of their ability to kind of manipulate colors with the flux that they spray on the outside of the brick. So, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting there. Um, and so thinking about that historic preservation side, I said earlier that um, the old-time brick kilns, they're called updraft kilns, scove kilns, um, they would basically, in colonial period, build an outside structure of brick, uh, and they would stucco it, and then they would, on the inside, uh, build tunnels, and they would stack all their brick up on top of it, and then they would fire the brick. So brick that are fired in an updraft scove kiln tend to be much more inconsistent in their size and color and even their hardness um, simply because of the way, the, in, the, the inefficiency of the way that they were fired. Then around the end of the 1800s, we start to see more use of what are called beehive kilns. And these beehive kilns uh, allow the gases to, to be brought back in and flow around the brick instead of just being dissipated sort of up and out of the, the kiln like, like the updraft scope kilns right. were. These had, these had a top and a big chimney on them so they could keep that heat in and around the brick longer and they would get a much more effective fire rate. But even still, there were inconsistencies there. So it really isn't until you start seeing these tunnel kilns in the more modern era of brick making that you get that real consistent face brick, consistent hardness. So what that means is when you go back to the 1800s and you're dealing with preserving brick that more often than not were made in an updraft scove kiln, they're going to be incredibly soft. Uh, and that's especially true when you take the face off of them. Um, right. But if you bring a grinder up near them, I mean, it's like butter. The grinder will go right through them. And it's just because of the way that they were fired. They were never really, in most cases, brought to the heat that they really should have been, or at least according to modern standards. And right. so, of course, as we said earlier, incorporating Portland mortar which did not come around, was not even in their vocabulary to the most part uh, at that time period. And incorporating that into really old brick is just doing an incredible disservice. Um, Portland, Portland really gets discovered in the 1820s, but really doesn't make its way into American usage in terms of use, being used to lay brick, honestly, until like the, the 1920s and, and, and uh, the 1930s is when you really start to see it. So my motto is, if I come across a, a home, whatever was original to what was put in those brick, I'm going to put back into that. And it can be, it can be tricky because the 1920s and 30s, you see some real weird changes where guys are starting to incorporate some Portland. You see some interesting mortar ideas Mixes and things that men were at that time <laughs> yeah. period. But uh, typically, typically pre- 1912, and I know that sounds like a weird, hard number, but 
pre-1912, pre-1920, if, if, you, if that house was built prior to that time period, they're using lime mortar, typically right. is the case, and, and it's best yeah. to replace it with that lime mortar. Yeah, and, and you know, we, I, 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 as you were going through that, I was thinking of different instances where we've come across, you know, houses where the brick, you know, has been, you know, damaged from, from somebody not doing doing the right thing. Um, but when you were talking about the, um, the, we recently, within the past year, were at a home that was stone. And um, mm-hmm. much like the, um, oh, I can't think of the, the uh, Font, uh, Font Hill, the Mer- where Mercer Tile Works is. I don't know if you've been there. It's in yeah. Bucks County. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But that's concrete, and it was er- an early concrete building. You know, we were trying out new building materials, you know, we collectively. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, you know, the house that we were at, you know, we were there, and we were, cons- we were you know, giving our opinion on it, and another preservation minded person came in, you know, not everybody has the same thoughts, you know, within any, any industry. And Mm -hmm. that it was a stone building. They wanted that it was originally Portland because it was, you know, that early, you know, early 1900s where, you know, they had built this house out of, you know, stone Mm -hmm. in Portland and the the preservation, like you have to take all of that out. And I'm thinking, that's how it was built. Like I understand from a, from, I understand from a purist standpoint that, but that is like the history of the house. So like, you know, it's you, it's different philosophies. Sure. Sure. It is. It is. And you know, if that's how it was built, I, that, yeah, I I go with that same, same kind of motto too. And it's a little bit of a different story. Yeah. How do you, do you do like your own analysis then on the mortar or how do you send it out? I do. Uh, for me, for time constraints and just having the technology, uh, I'll send it out. So I work with Penstone, but there's also uh, Lancaster Limeworks, and, and they're really good in there as well. Uh, they'll take mortar samples, uh, also send it into Penstone, and there's a, a company that they send it to down near Philly called Limeworks, and they'll do an analysis for me, uh, and, and they'll kind of break it down to determine um, obviously, color, um, what kind of sand would have been used. Sand plays a major role uh, in, 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 the, in the, the lime process. And then even if there was other agents that were put in, maybe a fleck or a horsehair or what kind of coloring, those kinds of things. So, yeah, I normally send all mine out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh. Very good. Um, let's see. So I know that you've done – and that's actually how, I, how I, I found you initially. I read an article about your one of your seminars. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I, I know that you've done, like, the history of brick making. You kind of talked about that at the beginning. You also did a day, was it at the house that hand built for middle yeah, schoolers yeah, and high schoolers? Yeah, uh-huh. at Rockford. Is there any interesting facts that you've uncovered or, or discovered while you've done, been doing the research for those that maybe, you know, our listeners would be interested yeah. in? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of fascinating stuff. I mean, that. The American studies side of me is interested in the brick, but I also is, I'm interested in the people, uh, and, I, and, I, and I love that side of it. It's not going to help me probably at all in restoring <laughs> a brick, but, but the people are fascinating. Um, there are an incredible number of brick makers, and I'm mostly focused on Lancaster City that kind of pop up in the city. They, they come and go. They, they tend not to last very long. Uh, they're going to have a brickyard. Chances are they're going to run out of material. And then you see their, their, them pop up later on. I was, I was actually able to identify, document, as far as I can find out, in Lancaster City, 
every every person that had a brickyard going back to the 1700s all the way up to the modern era, and I was being the history teacher that I are that I am, I, I actually was able to document exactly where their brickyard was, and I actually did that on Google Earth. So <laughs> every brick every brickyard that existed from the 1700s up to quite frankly the end of real really brick making in Lancaster County, which ended with the Lancaster County Brick Company. I've, I've documented where they are on the map. And um, a couple of interesting things that I discovered, uh, we talk about Martin Milan. A lot of people know Martin Milan as being the gunsmith and the yes. historical marker is the Martin Milan gunsmith. Well, the truth is he actually pulled a patent to open up a brickyard, and he intended to make brick, and he also intended to make clay tile, which was interesting, kind of bringing that idea from Europe. And right. The truth is we actually have more documented evidence that he had a brickyard along the Conestoga Creek there than we do that he actually had a rifle uh, shop. Not that I'm, I'm sure he did, but Northern right. University did a, lot of, uh, did a lot of archaeological work to try to determine for sure if the so-called Martin Miley gun shop really is a Martin Miley gun shop. And they actually kind of came up with not the answers they wanted, but there's a lot more documented information, I just me personally think, on that. So I found that interesting. Uh, I also found that after 1873, so one of the things that I used to determine where Brickyards was is looking at these things called Sanborn insurance maps. Yeah. So insurance companies want to find out for insurance purposes every building in the city to determine it's obviously for insurance purposes of how much it's worth and or problems that might occur from that. And one of the things that they do is they identify what those buildings are so it helped me determine where Brickyards were and it also helped me determine what that building might have been made out of, wood, brick, stone, those kinds of things. And so after 1873, Lancaster County actually passed an ordinance that no future buildings could be made out of uh, wood or frame uh, after that point. Uh, and it's interesting because that happens right after the Great Chicago Fire. So the, a lot of these oh, insurance yeah. companies are trying to make sure that... So, so you really start to see an uptick in, in brick makers in Lancaster City. Um, uh, one of the things that is interesting not all of them, but a good majority of the brickmakers tended to be on the west side of Lancaster City. And I think one of the main reasons for that is because, and we always talk about um, the, the different streams and things that ran through uh, Lancaster that have mostly been covered over by now, but those original streams that a lot of them ran on the west side of town were depositories for a lot of the clay and shale material that these guys needed. So we see sense. a large number yeah. kind of in that west side. Um, a number of them were Civil War veterans. There was a big brickyard called the Wise Brick Plant that actually sat at where the Country Garden six-pack is on the west side of Lancaster City, kind of near Prospect Avenue. And they had, the Wise family had several generations of, of brickmakers. They lasted until the 1920s, making their brick in a very old-school kind of way with updraft scove kilns and kind of using the old-school kind of ways that their fathers had, had done it. And they continued that into the 1920s. In fact, the Wise brothers made um, the brick for a lot of the original buildings at Millersville University, uh, Dutcher Hall and the President's Man or the, the, uh, the, the, the President's House, the, uh, yes. I think the old library, uh, were made out of of their bricks. Uh, one of the, the father, Christian was his name, he fought in the Civil War and fought at so many different battles that are, of course, are interesting to me as a history teacher. It's, it's neat to see that. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
and uh, just kind of following the different guys that are involved in that. There was a guy, Henry Martin, who had a, a brick manufacturing uh, company. He actually made he actually made the equipment to make bricks, and his son ends up taking over that, and that becomes Posey Ironworks, and then they organize themselves together with the Wolsons and Armstrong, and this big conglomerate ends up forming what becomes Lancaster Brick Company, which is going to get founded right after World War One, and it's going to last all the way up to the 1980s. And some people, you know, a lot of people still talk about the Lancaster Brick Company today, and the Lancaster Brick Company had set itself up over near F&M, uh, near the sports fields at F&M, kind of in that whole area there where they're putting in... Oh, that they uh, just redid. Yep, all that. That's yeah. all where their big brickyard was. And so it's kind of fascinating reading about the history of those guys and seeing what they did. And then another thing that's interesting is when you know a brickyard sat there and you also know when that brickyard was ended, then you can you look at that area and you go, ah, that's why all those houses were built after 1920, or that's why all those houses were built after 1890, because there was a brickyard that sat in that space right. for that long. You know, so it's kind of neat to it's kind of neat to see that. So, um, a lot of fascinating yeah. Lancaster County history. You're bringing in old Lancaster County names and all that, and I, I find yes. that interesting. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm going to uh, make sure that I get myself to one of your history of brickmaking seminars. I, I, I would I, I, I'm finding this very interesting, and I'm learning all kinds of stuff that I didn't know. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So, in fact, um, it, was, it was interesting. Uh, one of the big brick manufacturer, well, another one of the guys was a guy by the name of James Prangley. And I was called by a phone call from a woman who asked me to come and restore parts of her house, the brickwork of her house. She lived in James Prangley's home on West Chestnut Street. And so it was really neat to do all this research on James Prangley and then literally go to his house and repoint yes. his bricks. So, you know, some of those things are neat. Yeah, that's that's exciting. It's exciting when you get those those connections, you know, from from different parts of your your life, but also, you know, like the you know your work. Your work is all yeah. all connecting together. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, is there anything that you wish you knew when you started out that you know now? And I don't I think uh, that could be, you know, you can you can take that however you want. I won't. I won't. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was a, a young, dumb mason back in the day. I, I wish I had the knowledge piece, you know. Uh, I am sure that as much as I can stand here and, you know, sort of show my anger perhaps at masons that sometimes don't take the time to preserve the way they should, uh, I'm sure I, I, I know uh, that I did that. I didn't, you know, you didn't know any different. And, uh, right. and I made a lot of those mistakes. Um when I was when I was back, you know, 15 or so years ago, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges pres- challenges in preservation is the education piece, convincing people that they're investing in in time, they're investing in history, and right. we've got to preserve these buildings. And I and I think it's, I'm, I, you know, we talk about ignorance, and I I, I get frustrated sometimes with. Some people just don't know. Like, I, I just didn't know. And once they learn, they're like, oh, that's great. But I think the biggest right. frustration for me is people, once they learn or a mason they knows and still refuses to, ah, whatever, it doesn't matter. They don't like, care, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah. No, that is, no, that's very frustrating. So, so that, that education piece, and I know that Penn Stone's been doing a good job trying to get the word out. Like I said, Lancaster Lime Works, uh, 
does a great job at really trying to spread that knowledge. And I, and I, and I think the other piece that really has to come with it is, and I, and I know a lot of people don't like city ordinances and, and, and rules coming down and those kinds of things, but if you get into certain parts of the city, they'll be more picky about the color of the siding or the color that you paint a particular house to make sure that it's historically accurate than they will about what the mason's doing to repoint the bricks. Right. And so the, the, you know, part of that is just getting that educational piece, not just to the masons themselves, but also into the city or the townships to recognize when they're dealing with these historical uh, brick buildings and then recognizing or at least having the understanding or the knowledge to identify, like I said earlier, how are these bricks yeah. fired? What kind of kiln were these brick fired in? And more importantly, at what time period were they fired? And quite frankly, 80 to 90% of Lancaster buildings, at least, especially downtown, are all going to come out of the 19th century. Um, right. And we're almost all fired in updraft scope kilns, at best, maybe beehive kilns. So that, that knowledge piece, I think, is the most diff- difficult thing. It's just getting people, sort of homeowners as well, uh, knowledgeable about their expectations for the person uh, that's coming in to do the work on, on their house. And there's no doubt about it. It takes longer. Um, I follow the National Park Service guidelines. When I repoint brick, I, I have a special tool specially made uh, by Trow and Holden for, re- for removing lime mortar. Um, and, 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 and I don't bring a grinder as best I can to any of those brick. And so it takes longer. It's just a little bit of a more time-consuming process. It's worth it, right. but and, it's sometimes yeah. hard to convince homeowners and masons themselves that it's worth this extra step that we're taking here for preservation, you know? Yeah, and, and, and that is true, I think, with most of preservation. And, you know, we often say, you know, it's like 80% of it is semi-skilled labor that, like, you could teach somebody to do this fairly mm-hmm. easily. And, and if, if, if the homeowner is willing to do some of that front-end work themselves and then bring an expert in to do what is the expert work, you, yeah. know, it, you know, it's one, you, if somebody wants to pay you to do, you know, all the prep work, that's fine, but it's not necessary to have an expert do that. And that yeah, we sure. often will tell people that because it is, it, it, it gets, it gets expensive, not because it's necessarily expensive, but because it's labor intensive, and you know, labor labor is it labor is expensive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. So, yeah. So, um, have you? I, I think you kind of touched on it, but have you noticed any trends in preservation? Have you Have you had any anything that you've noticed when you're out in the world? Um, I I I. I think even though I just kind of spend two minutes talking about me being frustrated at people not taking the time to do certain things, right. I do think, to be honest, that over the last five years, uh, I have seen throughout Lancaster City anyway, uh, a, a, a greater knowledge base of uh, people being aware of the home they own and being uh, taking ownership of that and making sure that things are done right and so I've been happy to to see that in in a lot of cases people willing to take the time uh, or more knowledgeable about Lyme versus Portland mortars Um, I've it may what came first the chicken or the egg it may be because people are calling me because they're aware of who I am but I've gotten a much more frequency of calls from people now homeowners specifically asking me before I even tell them about how to repoint mortar already telling me 
you know this needs to be done in line mortar. You know, and I'm like, oh, well, great. Well, and I think You're the internet helps with that too, don't you? People do, doing right. research I on the agree. internet ahead of time. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So those are all those are all good things. I, if I see a trend, I definitely see a trend moving in in that direction. Um, and it's more and, ecological yeah. too. And I think oh, that people yeah. like that component too. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, okay, so how how should someone contact you? Yeah, if anyone would want to get a hold of me, I, I, I have my own company. It's called West Swanson Masonry. Uh, they're more than welcome to email me, Wes underscore Swanson at AOL.com, or they can give me a call on my cell phone, 717-419-5706. Uh, okay, and I'll make sure busy. those are all on our website. Oh, uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. I get I get busy. Obviously, I mostly devote the summertime uh, to to my masonry side of things. I do some spring and fall work. Uh, I will tell people uh, right from the get go here. I'm scheduling for 2020. It's kind of the way that the situation I'm in now. Uh, this has been looking to be a really good summer for me, and I have a lot of work. And uh, oh, but great. but even if even if people, I love the educational side of things. I, I don't necessarily have to be the guy that does the job. Um, I care about the buildings in Lancaster, and I want to see them done right. So if I, I, I enjoy educating people about these things. So even if somebody was just interested in finding more about their brick or they wanted to chat or talk a little bit about the process, uh, I'm more than happy to, to call and talk and kind of go through that process with people, even if it doesn't mean a job. Uh, more than right. I, I really enjoy doing that as well. The educational piece is important to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, very good. Thank you. And then I was going to ask if you had any offers for our listeners, but that sounds like a great offer. And I know you had mentioned that you're doing some lectures also. Yeah. So I, I have definitely have one coming up here uh, in July, I believe July 5th, 15th, at the Mount Joy Historical Society. And I'm also in the works with LancasterHistory.org. We're looking at uh, maybe putting one together there. One of the things we I did one at Penn Stone, and I was really neat to be able to do it at Penn Stone, but they didn't have a really big area, and we, we, we filled it up pretty quickly. So one of the neat things about Lancaster County Historic Society is they have a, pr- a pretty big room. So um, I'll be talking with them, and maybe we'll be able to get something on, on the books here. But at this point, Mount Joy, I think July 15th, is the, uh, the, the, the the one I have on the books, and I can make sure that I give you that exact information, Danielle. And you can Definitely, put that I'll your, make sure it's on, on the website. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for taking time out of, I know the end of the year is a busy time, so thank <laughs> you for taking some time out to, to chat with me today. Sure thing. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Danielle. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.